Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's just so exciting and I know very special for Eugene, very special for us as a church to just witness that. And in a sense, you've already uh, seen the sermon uh, in what has just taken place and, and as well as what Gordon uh, explained to us. So in a sense, we've, we've sort of been there and we've had the sermon, but here's a second one. Uh, And most of you well know, as Gordon said, that we as a church have been working our way through what is a very interesting, colourful, graphic, and at times disturbing Old Testament book, the book of Judges. And we spent, I don't know, about seven, eight weeks working our way through it. And the book of Judges is generally seen to contain three sections. Part 1 runs from chapter 1, verse 1, right up to chapter 3, verse 7. Then part 2 picks up at verse 8 of chapter, or verse 7 of chapter 3, runs right through to the end of chapter 16, to the Samson and Delilah incident. And then part 3 is Judges chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Now tonight we are due to finish this series by looking at part three, by looking at five chapters. Although, given the fact that that we did decide to include a baptism this evening, I I did think about avoiding chapters 17 to 21. I, I really did. Which, as a matter of interest, is exactly what most people tend to do when it comes to preaching through judges. Not a lot is actually said up front about part three. Here's what one person wrote after reading Judges chapter 17 and 18. In all my life so far, and that's most of it, I've never heard a single reference from pulpit or songwriter or study leader or anyone else at all, never one single tiny whispered sound that related to the Micah of the book of Judges. You see, we've all, I've no doubt, or many of us have heard of the Old Testament prophet Micah, who wrote the 33rd book of the Old Testament. But I wonder how many of us have heard much, if anything, about the other Old Testament Micah, the Judges 17 and 18 one. I have to be honest and say, before this week, I hadn't. And the person who who made that comment about the lack of sound regarding these chapters, he went on to give a reason for the silence. And here's his reason. The reason is that the story is so crazy. It's so mixed up. And obviously the parsons and the clerics are too embarrassed by it to let out a single peep. And I don't think I'm being too hard on them. Not a bit. Even the writer of the book of Judges seems embarrassed by it. So there is no doubt that the final chapters of Judges are really tricky. And there may be a case for leaving them alone up front. Maybe I should have prepared something else for this evening. Something more appropriate. But there are two reasons why I haven't. The first is that for weeks we have actually said we are going to look at them. It's in a sense it's in Buzzlane. Uh, which is our sort of like church magazine. It's on the website. And so somebody, somebody may be here tonight because they're interested or they're intrigued by the possibility of hearing something about something that they've never heard anything about. Okay? About five or six weeks ago, someone who was visiting Windsor on a Sunday night said to me on the way out, I look forward to hearing how you're going to deal with chapters 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. 
But secondly, here's the second reason I'm going to do this. And it takes us back to something I said at the very beginning of this series, the very first night we looked at this. If we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, and every word of it and every phrase of it is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, then it is really important and it's really worthwhile to reflect on the difficult and the unpopular parts of the Bible as well as the more accessible books and texts. So, we're going to stick with what we had planned. And I hope that's okay. But I'm sure as you can appreciate, there really only is so much or so little you can say in one sermon on five chapters. And so although I am going to say something, you may leave here tonight saying, he didn't really say very much. So let's start at the end. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the very final phrase in the book of Judges. It's on page 270 in the Bibles in the pews. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Here is the final phrase. Everyone did as he saw fit. And in a sense, that just about sums it up. And that phrase is closely connected to another one that if you've been in this journey with us, you'll know has been occurring time and time again. And it's this one. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You see, whenever we do our own thing, whenever we do what we think is right, whenever human beings are left to do what they see as fit, then mess happens. And I don't think you need me or anyone else for that matter to convince you of that. On the other hand, whenever people do what is right in God's eyes, then local communities, people groups, and individual lives look very different and actually look very appealing. And in the final five chapters of Judges, we read of at least four things that happened in Israel. Four examples of people doing as they saw fit. So here we go. We're going right through four chapters here, okay? So stay with me. The first incident happens in Judges chapter 17. And it concerns this Micah. And he steals some silver from his mum. And whenever he owns up to the theft, his mum is delighted by that. And she's so pleased that she has the returned silver melted down by a silversmith and made into a carved image and a cast idol. And Micah, whose name means who is like God, which is rather ironic, he sets up his own shrine in his own house with these idols and he installs one of his sons as a priest. Everything about that was wrong. Everything. Which is exactly why if you look at the second half of verse 6, it says, everyone did as he saw fit. Story goes on, a young Levite stops by the house looking for a place to stay. And Micah decides, I'm going to invite this Levite, and this is rather strange, but I'm going to invite him to be my father and my priest. And I'm going to do that in exchange for a whole bunch of money and for food and for clothing. Although the real reason is a hopeful wish on Micah's part that because this Levite has now been appointed as a priest, that God will be good to him. Again, it's all wrong. 
And why the Levite actually takes up a post in a house occupied by a bunch of idols is a telling discovery. People doing right in their own eyes. Second incident happens in chapter 18. Concerns the tribe of Dan. Turns out that this tribe are looking for a place to settle. Which is interesting because when the Israelites first conquered Canaan, the Danites were commanded to occupy the region between Ephraim and Judah, which they did to a point, but not completely. And so now they were looking for a place to relocate. So the problem was, they turned their backs on their allotted portion of the promised land. And what they did was they headed down the road and they destroyed a quiet and an unsuspecting city. They rebuilt it and they moved in. Not only did they do that, but they took Micah's idols and they set them up for their own worship. Another example of everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. Third incident, chapter 19, concerns, I think, a different Levite. And he has a concubine, it says. She's unfaithful, so she does a runner. She goes back to her dad. Four months down the line, her husband goes to invite her back to be with him. It works. She accepts his offer. And after staying a few days with the in-laws, the Levite and his concubine head for home. But it's a long journey, and so they break the journey up with an overnight stay in a place called Gibeah. And while sitting in the town square, a man comes up to them and he invites the concubine and the Levite to his house to spend the night. Door knocks and then the scene descends. And for those of you who know your Bibles, the similarities between Judges 19 and Genesis 19 are striking. Is Gibeah the new Sodom? Because it says that a crowd of men come to the door, knock the door, and insist on having, and for the sake of the audience, relations with the Levite. There's one real tragic difference between Genesis 19 Judges 19. Sodom was a pagan city. Gibeah was a city occupied by the people of God. The man who owns the house, he offers his daughter instead. What a messed up dad. The crowd refuse, and so the Levite sends out his concubine. What a messed up husband. She's abused, it says, all night. But she manages to stagger home, and she collapses at the door. Next morning, the Levite finds her almost steps over her. He's unsure if she's dead or if she's unconscious, and so he takes her home. Then, he cuts her up into 12 pieces. And he sends the pieces into all parts of Israel. It's shocking. It's disturbing. But once again, we discover a Levite, a host, and the men of Gibeah just doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. Final incident, we're up to chapter 20. Concerns the same Levite. The men of Israel, it says, after receiving their gruesome package, they come together in outrage and they demand to know, look, what's happened? 
And well, the Levite, he explains, although his version of the story isn't entirely accurate. But nevertheless, the Israelites insist that the tribe of Benjamin hand over the men of Gibeah to be punished. But instead, the Benjamites fight with Israel and almost every grown man in their tribe is killed in battle. Once again, people just doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, as you read down what in many ways just seems like a mess, you wonder to yourself, how come these people have sunk so low? How come they constantly make poor choices? Well, I want to suggest to you in the final chapters, there's a clue. Because there is another recurring phrase that offers some insight into the heart of the problem. You see, not only did everyone do what they saw fit, not, everyone, not only did the Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord, but four times were told us, in those days, Israel had no king. Now that is true up to a point. Okay, they didn't have an earthly king like the surrounding nations, but Israel did have a heavenly king, the Lord God Almighty. The problem was the people chose not to acknowledge him as king, not to worship him as king, not to serve him as king, not to obey him as king. In fact, as it said back in chapter 2, the Israelites decided to abandon the Lord. They went after, they worshipped, and they served the gods of the people who lived around them. So in those days, Israel actually lived like she had no king. She lived like there was no one to be accountable to, no one to be responsible to, no one to be answerable to. And therefore the sin, the decline, the doing what was right in their own eyes was the direct result, the logical outcome, if you like, of what happens whenever the one and only true God is not worshipped, whenever he's not served, whenever he's not obeyed. This is what happens. Whenever God is not given his rightful place, when he's ignored, when he's abandoned, when he's pushed away, then the result is meltdown, breakdown disintegration, not only on a personal level, but on a social level and on a national level. And two millennia and more later, and you could argue that not a lot has changed really. We still find ourselves living in a context where people want the freedom to do what they want to do. In fact, many people today actually believe that's the way it should be. Nobody should tell me what is right and what is wrong. In fact, if it feels good, I'll do it, is the popular mantra. I'll discover what is right in my own eyes, and then I'm going to go for it. We don't want a king to rule over us. In our day, we have no king. But the problem still remains that when everyone does what they think or feel is right in their own eyes, then the mess and the mayhem and the dysfunction and the pain is inevitable. And the Bible makes it clear that whenever we choose to go down that path, then it's a road to disaster. And the Bible, according to one writer, speaks about the quicksand and the visual impairment of my own eyes. And the book of Proverbs, for example, speaks into the heart of the problem, which is ever as a problem of the heart. And so Proverbs 21 says this, People may be right in their own eyes, but the Lord examines the heart. 
You see, whenever God has not given his rightful place in our lives and in our hearts, whenever he's not recognized, he's not acknowledged as king, then we have no real reference point. And what we all end up doing is our own thing, which is exactly like Micah and the Levite and the Danites and the men of Gibeah, etc., etc. You see, the wisdom and the teaching of God's word is clear. That what we may do may seem right in our eyes. But ultimately, God searches our hearts, every one of our hearts. He searches them and he decides. And many of us know the story of Israel and where it goes to after judges. That the people reach a point where they decide, you know something, we need a king. Yeah, we do want a king. And so they approach Samuel, or at least their elders approach Samuel, and they ask Samuel, can you please appoint a king for us to judge us? Just like all the other nations. And Samuel does that and he appoints David. But in the years that followed, the hundreds of years that followed, the people are still found to be struggling to do what is right in their own eyes. Kings, many of them struggle with doing what is right in their own eyes. And okay, kingship in Israel did bring a sort of level of civic order that was definitely missing during the time of the judges. There's no doubt about that. It did help in terms of history, but in terms of people's hearts. And I came across this phrase during the week, which I thought was brilliant. In terms of the heart, the monarchy could not deal with the miarchy of men and women's lives. Self. Still want to do what's right in my own eyes. See, the irony is, the people were right to cry for a king, but the problem was they didn't recognize the type of king they really needed. And that's why whenever Samuel approaches God, and he brings the people's request to God, God says this, Okay, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel. But here's the point. They have rejected me for being king, for being king over them. The people needed the king, not a king. And they rejected having God to rule over them, to rule over their hearts. And therefore they kept, constantly kept doing what was right in their eyes. What they thought was wise in their own eyes. And if only. And Solomon, who was one of their kings, one of their earthly kings, one of the wisest men who ever lived, he probably realized the mistake of not having the king in place in the lives of his people. And therefore he wrote these well-known and often quoted words. But I want you to notice how this little well-known phrase actually finishes because we often end it far too early. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Does anyone know where that goes to next? Because those two bits are really well-known. Here's what it says next. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord And turn away from evil. You see, our greatest need is to have God on the throne of our lives. On the throne of our hearts. We need to reach a place where we dethrone self and we submit to the king. Here's how one prayer puts it. O God of highest heaven, occupy the throne of my heart. Take full possession and reign supreme. Lay low every rebel lust. Let no vile passion resist thy holy war. Manifest thy mighty power and make me thine forever. Thou art worthy to be praised with my every breath, loved with my every faculty of soul, and then served with every act of my life. Do you know that 
is not the prayer or the cry of someone who wants to do what's right in their own eyes. That is the cry of someone who wants to lean on God, who wants to acknowledge God, who wants to fear God, who wants to turn from evil. And the question I just want to ask us tonight is this, as we come to the end of this series, is that your prayer? Can you echo those words? You know, in the days of Judges, God had to keep up raising up deliverers. And we have looked at 12 of them. 12 of them during this whole series. Men and a woman who God sent to rescue the people from themselves. To rescue the people from the mess that they had created by constantly doing what was right in their own eyes. And then one day in history, God decides, I'm going to send the ultimate judge. I'm going to send the ultimate deliverer who's going to rescue people. Who's going to rescue every one of us from a life lived and spent from doing what is right in our own eyes. And Jesus Christ came, lived, died, rose again. And through faith in him, we can now give our hearts over to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In our day, we can have a king. We desperately need one. You know, Eugene, before us tonight, has shared graphically how he has given his life and his heart over to that king. And tonight, via this symbolic act, he wants you to know who occupies the throne of his heart and life. Does that mean that Eugene and any of the rest of us who sit here tonight and claim to be Christians, does that mean that we now always do what is right in the Lord's eyes? No, it doesn't. But it does mean that it is our desire, it is our intention. It does mean that as we live our day-to-day lives in Christ, that we face this challenge. So when it comes to forgiveness, I long to do what's right in God's eyes. I don't want to do what's right in my own eyes. When it comes to finances, my aim is to do what is right in God's eyes, not to do what's right in my own eyes. When it comes to my attitude, to my thoughts, to my choices, to my behavior, I long to do, and I know Eugene does, He longs to do what is right in God's eyes. And Judges has been a book that reminds us what happens when people don't. But it's also been a book that reminds us that God in his grace offers hope. Hope of a new day. And that hope remains. And I pray that more and more people will allow the king to occupy the throne of their hearts. Let me just pray before I hand over to John. Father, at times your word uh, stretches us. At times we come to it and walk away from it and we're not entirely sure what to make of it. And yet, God, all scripture is breathed by you and it is useful. And God, I pray that we would learn the lessons from your word. Learn the lesson of what happens when actually we decide to do what's right in our own eyes. Because then we do end up doing what's evil in your eyes. And so save us from that. Save us from ourselves. God, help us to cry out to you to occupy the throne of our hearts. That we would dethrone self and put you in your rightful place. And thank you that that is possible because of Jesus. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.